0: progress. It's in the actions we take right now, and in daring to think differently. Each one of us can do something to change things for the better, right where we are now, and a thousand small things done with intent adds up to real change. For some people, that initial spark becomes a fire. Welcome to the Every Woman Changemakers podcast. I'm Anna, your host, and every month I'll be talking to inspiring leaders and activists who are changing outlooks challenging perceptions, and making a difference in the worlds of inclusion, business, the environment, sport, travel, and more. We'll be discussing their work, motivations, and vision, and most importantly, how a revolution of one can lead to a positive, powerful change for the many. Today, we're talking to Sally Howard, whose new book, The Homestretch, looks at the hidden labour of housework and the politics of this unpaid work. In the UK, research by the ONS has shown that women carry out an overall average of 60% more unpaid work than men, with the average heterosexual British woman putting in 12 more days of household labour per year than her male companion. And with the recent pandemic exacerbating this and laying bare the unequal division of labour like never before, the issue of who does the dishes and its implications for gender equality has never been more pertinent. So welcome, Sally. Hello. (laughs) So, third shift, emotional labour, mental load, the juggle, whatever you want to call it. Um, The fact is that women are still doing a disproportionate amount of domestic labour. So what did you want to highlight? And, And ultimately, what did you want to change by writing this book? Was it born out of your own experiences?
1: It was a a combination of both, really. I mean, I come from a a gender studies academic background and I, you know, had studied all of the kind of wonderful movements in the 70s, such as wages for housework, when housework, women's work, as it was then known, was this big political shibboleth. This was the thing that women had to change. And, you know, there were marches, amazing marches on on New York, women holding placards, don't iron while the strike is hot. And then somehow in the 80s and 90s, It shifted out of focus. And I think as I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, I think all of us who were, you know, drunk on girl power thought, that's unsexy. That's gone away. Men are pitching in, heterosexual men are pitching into the same rate. It's kind of over. That battle's been won. And then I had a child in my sort of late 30s. and I had a very egalitarian setup with a man who would, you know, claim to be a feminist. And suddenly... I realised the error of my preconceptions because in the book there's something I refer to as the parent labour trap. The fact that with the arrival of a child, uh, domestic labour increases by around three hours a day, and two of those hours fall to women. Um, so it can be quite a brutal shock, I think, for some, you know, blithe feminists. <laughs> <laughs> enter into parenthood and they think what's happened to my life my expectations that I would be with this man who was sort of you know on this chain from being Neanderthal man to kind of homo erectus with the squeegee in his hand yeah it's
0: that's exactly it isn't it I mean I think you know in our early years as you say drunk on girl power we thought well who cares who does the hoovering you know because you can walk away from the man that drops his pants if you're not you know if you haven't got child with him, <laughs> I mean, you know, that's, it's interesting, isn't it? That motherhood is the Rubicon where, you know, reality kicks in, but where, I mean, where does this inequality start? Um, you know, even those of us who weren't socialized into it, you know, like perhaps, uh, generations before us, uh, find ourselves sort of doing it all, um, as you say, certainly post motherhood, but one could argue, kind of generally,
1: anyway. Well, I think there's, you know, there's there's a lot that goes into it. It's all very well saying we need enlightened feminist males, but everything from sort of socialisation to government structures reinforces, unfortunately. And something I try to convey to my partner was that you know you're not judged if the child is covered in sick. You're not judged if you know the in-laws come round and there are no biscuits when you have a cup of tea. There's this whole sort of strata of expectations and then there are like there are structural things such as even though we've got shared parental leave as a a right now from 2015 very few couples take that up and unfortunately that means that all of this work is reinscribed for women and men develop less expertise and it's a bit of a slippery slope unfortunately. I want to talk about these expectations
0: and what our role is in perpetuating them. I mean, I I just wanted to come back to before we started the podcast, I was saying to Sally that, um, you know, I've discussed this with many friends and that there is a general red mist about who does the dishes. That's the shorthand for who carries that, who who keeps the home running pretty Mm -hmm. much. One thing that we all discussed was our role in, obviously, there are these expectations, but then there's the sense that, well, we'll just get on and do it because we don't want to have to ask, or we don't want to have to think about apportioning it or having it done wrong. Where do we fit in in that, in, in, in that role as women in perpetuating this?
1: Yeah, it's difficult because you, we don't want to hand it all over to women to make the change again, do we? Because actually women have done, done a huge amount of changing. But I think there's a lot we can do around narratives. So for example, those, oh, men, women are just better. Fair enough, women might have developed more expertise because they've been expected to, but there's no reason to say that women are better at any of these things and that men can't develop expertise. That rolling of the eyes and saying, oh, he's just a bit of a crap incompetent dad that we saw in adverts throughout the 1990s, you know, the man who put the flour in the washing machine. Those those discourses are quite dangerous, actually, because they reinforce the idea, much as we like to take comfort in them, that we're better, that small children need their mums more than they do their father's. Please don't help my cause.
0: The one thing that came up time and time again in my, um, you know, sort of unofficial straw poll was not the sense that men, you know, that women are better at these things, but that they notice what needs to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the other thing that was also said was, uh, you know, that that sense of um, the question of, you know, oh, well, I would have helped. Why Why didn't you ask? Why should we have to ask? And why do we notice? And again, is that is that, is that a socialisation? Is that an expectation? Or do women just look at the world in a very different way when it comes to how the household runs?
1: I mean, studies have shown that no, actually, women and men don't notice dirt. At you know, Women don't have these all-seeing eyes that they notice. <laughs> <laughs> the men do, again, it's, it's socialisation. And obviously, we've got these new categories of work that we've named, which is very useful. Mental labour, the mental load, emotional labour that has come from feminism in recent years, I'd argue that that's always been there, really, because you've always had good housekeeping. You've always had this idea of household management. It's just that now we're kind of couching it in slightly different terms and saying, yeah, look, there's all this invisible labor of taking responsibility, too. You know, I can't be the controller who doles out requests of what needs to be done. I've got this psychological weight of, knowing when the PE kit needs to be packed or knowing when the lure packs run out. So, yeah, this is great. And this is a great breakthrough in sort of contemporary feminism that invisible labor is being talked about.
0: I mean, obviously there are, you know, a generation of women bringing up boys uh, and possibly that, you know, you can start to reset expectations at that level. You can start to sort of uh, change the way that they interact with the home. But for the relationships that are already there with you know partners how do you go about changing the expectations within that because it, it can cause really big rows can't it men will say something but i do do this and because it's invisible labor it's very hard to quantify so how do we as women now uh work with our partners to make this a more even uh situation and I mean it's probably quite difficult given the pandemic, we've just seen that we've all fallen back into it, haven't we? Or most of us.
1: I mean I think I think the you know, one of the kind of startling things I found in the book was that, you know, yes, we we may avoid conflict around these things, but actually already heterosexual couples have conflict and it has an emotional effect on their children that, you know, you see in the children of heterosexual parents um you know a kind of emotional scarring with children that comes from the that we do have spats around chores and even if they're unspoken i think we have to embrace the fact that there's going to be conflict in these areas i'm a big advocate for housework strikes going on strike make visible this labor obviously without kind of jeopardizing necessary care but i i i would be an advocate for returning more to direct action as we saw in the 60s and 70s because Um, you know, things have become really crucial now. You know, what's happened with the pandemic, we've seen an extra 10 hours of labour a day that, you know, the the pre-existing asymmetries have been mapped across and women are doing 60% more of this. Women are dropping out of work in in quite high numbers. So it's come to quite an emergency point. So I would say, yes, you've got to try talking about it. You know, and we will, you know, I think we assume sometimes there won't be a sympathetic idea from from men, you know, sympathetic reception from men. I mean, my partner for a long time struggled with the idea that, um, you know, there was an expectation we do things like sending Christmas cards or all the kind of work around sending WhatsApp messages to fellow parents and organizing children's social lives. And he would just say, why do it? Why make work for yourself by sending messages to to other? Why create this? And I think now he has taken it on board, and it yeah. took a while, but he sort of understood that if he, you know, refuses sending Christmas cards because he doesn't want to sort of tap into this sort of terrible capitalist thing, it then puts it on my shoulders. So I think I think you know incrementally we can we can talk about these things and we have to keep talking about these things. And we also have to, you know, put boots to the ground a bit, I think. Yes, direct action.
0: I mean, uh, the thing that occurs to me that if we sort of ha- can go on strike, you then enter a sort of game of slightly playing chicken with how, how messy and disorganised can your life become. Presumably then you move forward through that to a whole new utopia of, of more balance. But
1: yes, it's... <laughs> that's a dream but there's also you know a lot of people advocate or feminists would advocate cutting back yes reducing domestic standards i agree with that to a certain extent but again you know you can jeopardize care and as we've seen with the pandemic uh levels of sanitation (laughs) so far that cutting back can go when you have small children or or you know vulnerable people around so i think it's a mixture but i think we know We need to start with some frank conversations and changing the discourses a bit around all of this and not, you know, comforting ourselves with this sort of blithe idea that we're just better at these things because that's doing us no favours.
0: There is a very clear point that we're talking about heterosexual couples here, and I wanted to ask, you know, what happens in single sex couples? Is it a gender thing?
1: It's fascinating, actually, that um, numerous studies and the servo for my book, you have a very different sort of div- grounds for division of labour. In homosexual male couples, it tends to be along the lines of aptitude. So who's better at specific tasks? Obviously, that would be slightly disastrous for some heterosexual couples. In um, lesbian couples, it tends to be almost commonly as my survey and previous surveys have shown, the unpleasantness of the task. So the unpleasantness of the, the task will be sort of accorded a particular, you know, you do the loose scrubbing, I'll clean out the salad drawer in the fridge that's unpleasant. So you do have slightly different models and very tellingly, fewer lesbian couples um, pay a domestic cleaner. Um, s- You know, and and there was a lot of discomfort around the idea of paying another woman to clean your home. And, you know, the way I read it was, you know, lesbian couples can afford to live their feminism a little bit more. Because unfortunately, you know, often domestic cleaners, obviously that has been thrown up in the air a bit with the pandemic, were one of the fixes for men not pitching in. So these, you know, the, the the numbers of people who are kind of paying someone to clean their home, you know, has been recent years at high, higher rates than any time since the Edwardian period. So we'd had this, you know, this was one of our fixes. And um, I argue, I mean, I get a lot of kickback for this, but I argue that it's fundamentally unfeminist unless you're paying that woman, which pretty much always a woman, um, the amount that you earn per hour. Yeah, that's really interesting.
0: I mean, this comes to the to the point of intersectional femin- feminism, doesn't it? I mean, you've got issues of socioeconomic ability to pay or, or you know, you, you have also the issue of a, a lot of times this may be a, a ethnic minority woman that is being paid a lot less to clean. You know, there's lots and lots of layers to it, isn't there? I, I, you know, I suppose with the cleaner, there is that sense that in one way, you're making the labor visible by paying for it but at the same time it is in an area where you know it is not uh, paid very well it is not valued by society and like you say there are people that can and can't farm out this problem if you like
1: and it's very complex and it's it's very easy to sort of cite the agencies many of the recently sort of eastern european um women who've come into work in um domestic labor who don't speak very good english were often kind of brought in and paid below below market rates by agencies so it's all very well saying these are evil agencies but often women who come in perfect their english and then set up their own agencies so they themselves can <laughs> it's a very complex area it's so you can't you can't say you know nasty capitalism but i think you have to inquire if you are paying somebody through an agency who will be getting half the rate that you pay that agency you have to question that. I think you do. I think if you're paying someone directly and you're paying them a decent living wage, maybe it's a different issue. But in the end, I decided that I was what I was patterning to my son by having someone come into our home doing what the second wave feminists call our shit work. Mm. It's a good, good term. What am I patterning to my male child here? And, that, and I, in the end, my discomfort was too. Too great. Do
0: you know, in terms of the gender thing, it's very telling, isn't it? Where, where are the male cleaners? I've never heard of a male cleaner. <laughs> I
1: mean, there are some. Um, there are? There you know, are? All right, okay. I think it's around, I mean, you find, mo- mainly you'll find uh, male cleaners more in the office commercial area where they're using the sort of bigger equipment, which is, you know, sort of... It's very male, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I spent time with a lot of cleaners to do when I was compiling the book and, you know, they'd say, oh, yes, they, you know, the men will use the big carpet cleaners when we're doing the offices. And again, that kind of patterning of the men's work and women's work. Yeah, It is
0: so entrenched, isn't it? But it's it, it sort of, re, like you say, reinvented itself. Um, it's a slippery, slippery issue, uh, and as you say, you know, it dropped out of the it dropped out of the main feminist narrative for a while. There, I, th- I would say, would you agree that the pandemic has probably brought it roaring back into the main feminist narrative? It is the thing that we all have in common as women. Intersectionally, there are issues with the cleaner, um, you know, that that kind of cleaning cleaner. Thing. But generally, all women will clean more than men. I think that's fair to say. Generally,
1: yes, it's a great leveller. and it, and it, you know, it was, just, it was a great gathering ground for second wave feminism. And I just sort of, sadly, I and mean, it's a really grave pity that you know, in the eighties and nineties and into the noughties, there became this division between the women who did the shit work and the women who were the kind of you know, go getting, having it all women, and it became this sort of, you know, it was a schism really. And I think hopefully there's going to be a bit of a coming together. I mean, especially as the the care care work has been reevaluated and, you know, nursing and all of these areas have people have suddenly realised that the, the value of devalued women's work. So I think it's an important moment we need to grasp.
0: Is there any legislation or any, you know, on a, on a broader scale, any sort of governmental um, action that would help to make this situation more equal?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm all for structural change. And I think, you know, the way that um, shared parental leave is key and the way it's done in Sweden is um, that the, the, the government has a kind of tranche of money that comes straight from the government that's for care leave. And you can use that for shared parental leave. You can use it to care for elderly people. There's use it or lose it quotas. So there's portions that if the men don't use, they don't. you don't get that paid parental leave. So I think it has to be really sort of structurally installed and um, universal state paid um, early years childcare really is needed because the sort of market isn't working there. And, you know, um, nursery workers are underpaid. It's very gendered work. And you know, many other countries show give us models for how this can work better. So there are definitely st- structural things the state can do.
0: But as you said, that you know, they, they seem to be very much focused on the issue of motherhood. And obviously, not all women will become mothers or want to become mothers. Is there anything that can be done to help those women in their partnerships?
1: Well, I think I think you know, to, to make it a requirement on companies that they understand that people, you know, even even a single male needs to, as a feminist would call, reproduce himself. He needs to sort of be able to eat, feed, clothe himself. And unfortunately, a lot of our structures are built around the expectation that there'll be somebody at home to do that. Right. Um, obviously, you know, all of this is done for free to reproduce us for paid labor. So I think find some requirement on companies to understand that, we have to, you know, we are vulnerable, you know, that we have to look after ourselves, that there's all of this sort of care work we do for ourselves, for extended family, and that this isn't a gendered thing. So there should be more requirements um, pushing back against sort of, I think, corporate expectations. Because we've seen this, it's been shocking, hasn't it, the number of women who've requested furlough and been refused furlough, 71% have been refused furlough for childcare reasons uh, when yeah. they've re- it for childcare. And that's just not acceptable.
0: What do we need to do then? I mean, what was the conclusion that you came to uh, when you finished your book? And were you sort of hopeful for change?
1: I mean, I, I I am. I think, you know, I'm very heartened by the fact that we're a lot of us are looking at new modes and models of living. I mean, applications to communes have gone through the roof since the pandemic. And, you know, I make it the argument in brief in the book, but it's something that's very sort of close to my heart, that actually the the nuclear family dwellings that are based on you know, the labour of one housewife, which most of us live in, those 1930s homes that, you know, with the where the woman stands at her post in the kitchen and looks at the kids in the garden, they are massively wasteful. I mean, they're just a carbon nightmare. So, you know, I think we're starting to look at new modes of living. I think a lot of us are thinking about new ways of living. And I think that's really important. And that's what they were doing in the 70s. You had land dykes communes you had all of these sort of flowerings of alternative ways of life and I think the kind of you know the the environmental crisis makes it even more salient. So the
0: the message really is then that this is not an intractable situation it's a situation that's easy to default in because of past structures and our own uh, internal expectations and those of, of perhaps men and how they've grown up but we've got a whole new generation coming up we've got as you say big crises that will demand uh, different solutions, including the way that we look at our families and the way that we live. Right now, there's listeners nodding their heads, you know, feeling either enraged or empowered right now about how much housework they do or don't have to do. What would you say that the one change that they could make now to improve their situation would be?
1: Well, apart from sort of talking to their partner, they can join organisations such as uh, Women's Strike, who were kind of advocating striking around these housework and um, loads of different points of housework activism around this, um, yeah, and and talk about it talk about it a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, is there, you know,
0: it's interesting, you're right, communication is is such a positive way forward in all things. But is there a way to talk about it? I mean, you said that it took a while for your partner to kind of come round to certain things that he didn't perhaps see as important. Um, And I know that some men can feel quite, you know, criticised, very, you know, that, 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 and, and that's never a really good way to start a dialogue. So how can people have these conversations that will open up new ways of looking at things and new appreciations on both sides?
1: Well, maybe you can sit down and sort of itemize the work that you both of you do um, and, and just go through it, quite frankly, because there may be big areas of, of work that your partner, if you're in a heterosexual couple and you're a female, maybe there's a lot that he thinks he does. That you don't notice and maybe that would be a bone of contention if you suddenly sort of bring up the kind of whole categories of invisible labor so i'd say like do a stru- do a sort of structural analysis of what you do put it into categories say is there anything here that actually i don't need to do that i'm doing to live up to some expectation um i don't think often um, men realize the levels of work that schools demand of parents. I think that's often very invisible to males. So I think putting it down and itemising and even doing some sort of card system and trying for a week to exchange those roles, say, look, you know, this week, you can do the talking to the nursery. And I I think, you know, doing it in a, you know, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be threatening because sometimes it's good to be threatening, but doing it in a very kind of simple itemization categorization that can really help and can help help you as well to think wow okay you're getting resentful because you're doing this stuff and maybe some of the stuff you don't need to do
0: i love that idea of tag teaming actually because that's that's a really good way to sort of be um you know it's a non-critical Uh, useful way of going I do this now you do that I do this now you do that and you can take you can then see how much time it takes can't you if you're taking it in turn.
1: Eve Rodsky's book she's written a book that has a kind of um, quite American so it probably won't work for our sections we don't have things like yard work as much but she has quite a useful sort of different categories that you can drop the work into and say okay Let's switch up the yard work for something else this week. But I think, you know, it can take the steam out of it a bit if you sit there and say, hey, well, what do you think you do? Yeah. What do you do that you don't notice? Uh,
0: yeah, absolutely. And, and then you can have these conversations, as we say, that will take things forward. What ultimately would you like to see as the big change, and how soon could it happen? Do you think?
1: You know, there was the great quote from a feminist wit: "It's not the glass ceiling; it's the sticky floor." Stupid. And I think, you know, unfortunately, you know, women's um, success in in the broader world is really impeded by the demands of of household labor. And I would like to see, I'd like to see all of these categories of work just becoming ungendered. They become ungendered. They're acknowledged. They're something we do. Um, And there's also a sort of structural acknowledgement that we all have. We're all vulnerable. We all require care. We have to give and receive care. I think think I'd like to see that.
0: Sally Howard, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Every Woman is a global platform for women in business that drives positive change by empowering women to achieve their professional potential. Visit everywoman.com to discover how we're advancing women in business and inspiring a generation of future female leaders. For every woman, everywhere.